right, well, we are live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show this week. This is going to be a fun show, I think, because I received a message on Twitter from a new believer in India uh, saying that there is this uh, apologist in India uh, that has the ex-Christian show, uh, Esther is her name, and she produces videos trying to show that Christianity is false. And this new believer in India is saying, hey, will you please help me know how to respond to this? Will you uh, recommend some content, some things that we can look at, uh, some maybe some some resources, and help me know how to respond to objections like this? And so uh, this will be fun. We're going to be working through uh, her series, or at least part one of her series. I was planning on looking at more of her videos and trying to include actually her her whole series. She's a four-part series on the Bible being the Word of God, and I was like, "All right, let's let's tackle all four of these." And I made it through part one, and as you'll see, there's a ton of information, a lot that we're going to go through, a lot of Bible verses we're going to be looking at, uh, some things I'm going to show you online, a lot of her video that we're going to watch, and so a lot of fun content. So maybe in the future, I'll work through a few more parts of her uh, series on why the Bible is not the Word of God and why it is just a human work filled with contradiction and errors and absurdities. Um, but that's why I'm going through it, is that it was sent to me by a Christian in India. So thank you. If you're watching, thank you for sending this. And Esther, if you're watching, um, I hope that, look, one thing I hate about these kind of videos is I wish I could have a conversation with you. I wish we could sit down and talk about these things because there's probably things that I might say that doesn't perfectly represent you, and I'm sorry about that. And there's probably things that, you know, we, we would work through and go, maybe we agree on this and, okay, we disagree here. And so I wish I could have these kind of conversations with people. People, which is why, short little plug, uh, last Friday of every month, 2 p.m. Pacific time, I'm doing a Q&A on my channel where you can actually call in and have conversations. And so if anyone listening has questions that you want to talk through with me about, uh, that is the last Friday of every month, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And that gives me the chance to have that conversation with you to where you can push back and you can respond to things that I say that go, wait, that that's not clear. Can you clarify that for me? That's what I love doing as a high school teacher is teaching and the students immediately saying, whoa, 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 hold on. And so I don't necessarily like as much uh, with these kind of videos. And so I wish that I could respond. But I do think it's important to, to look at the ideas presented and to think about, are these good ideas? Are these bad ideas? Because ideas are persuasive. And we as Christians and, and whoever it is that you're watching, we are hearing ideas all over the place. And I hope maybe if you're not a Christian, that you will be persuaded by my ideas here and that we present a reasonable case. And so sometimes people are very persuasive, but the case is maybe not as strong. And so hopefully you see this as not a attack against Esther. Esther, I'm not attacking you, but you presented some ideas that I think really have to be thought through. And I think um, trying to point out some, some ways in which I would put it differently. And I think it doesn't come to the same conclusion that you came to in your video. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Hopefully trying to be respectful, charitable, talking like we would talk as if we're talking to someone face to face. And so thank you guys for being here. If I didn't say it already and you are new, my name is Ryan Polly. This is a weekly show where we think deeply about the Christian worldview so you, you can know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. And so a lot of fun interviews, as I said, uh, coming up next week is the Q&A. The week after that is going to be a conversation conversation with Kyle Strobel uh, on prayer. So getting into the kind of spiritual disciplines in the, in the Christian walk as well. So we cover a lot of different fun topics, not just Christian apologetics, but everything related to the Christian worldview. So with that, I think I am ready to kind of jump in. Uh, now, a couple kind of pre-comments um, on Esther's video. So she's doing this four-part series. This is just part one, looking at contradictions uh, in the Bible and looking at problems in the manuscript, looking at errors in the different manuscripts that we have. And she starts off 
And what I want you guys to see and what I want to kind of try to point out is presenting this narrative that I, that I don't think is a correct narrative, almost like a straw man. And then it paints, kind of puts God in a corner, paints Christianity in a negative light. And, and I want to challenge that narrative. I want to challenge the, the, the initial story that's being presented. And it starts at the very beginning of the video where she says, apologists study the scriptures to provide a scaffolding for Christian doctrine. Critical scholars, on the other hand, study Christian, Christian concepts to arrive at truth and are not concerned with saving all of Christianity. This is this idea that we often hear presented as a Christian apologist like myself. We can't be critical. Um, that if someone is defending a view, they're not actually trying to find truth. They're just defending their view as if it's blind. Now, I'm not, again, saying that Esther's necessarily saying this, but I hear this other places as well, where you'll talk about critical historians who defend the resurrection. But if you name a single Christian, it's like, well, they're not critical. They're Christians. Well, maybe they're critical and they became a Christian because the evidence is that good. And so now they're defending it because they are defending the truth. And so I think one thing that we have to be careful of is not to allow someone to say, well, but you're a Christian. Of course you defend it. You're not actually looking for truth then. No, I defend my view because I believe it's true, because I am convinced it is true. I've looked at this critically. And it's like, no, only if you're not a Christian can you critically look to try to arrive at truth. If you're a Christian apologist, you simply uh, look at this to provide a scaffolding and defend the Christian doctrines. And I think this is a false idea from the very beginning that you can't be a Christian and look critically trying to figure out what is actually true, that somehow if we hold to a worldview, we must be blinded by it. And so um, I just want to kind of, that, that's a very kind of initial point of, of, yes, I'm a Christian. And yes, I'm a Christian apologist, but it doesn't mean that I can't with a critical eye evaluate something with the desire to come to the truth. I'm not just defending Christianity because I'm a Christian and, and I have to. It's because I honestly believe it's true. There's good reasons to believe it's true. If there wasn't, I would walk away. And I think that even, again, Scripture teaches that. In, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul talks about that Jesus did not rise from the dead, go eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I'm lying about God. My faith is in vain. My faith is futile. I might as well be gone. Walk away from the church. But it is true. Jesus did die and rise from the dead. God does exist. Christianity is true, and so we need to help people see it and present it in a persuasive way. And so um, we're going to jump in here to the video and begin to look at kind of the things that she talks about. And we're going to start off in the beginning of her talking about inspiration. What is the Bible's or the Christian's view of inspiration? And then looking at some contradictions and some um, challenges. So thanks for joining me. We're going to jump in to her video. Here we go. Christianity claims that the Bible is the Word of God, which in the Christian jargon means inspired by the Almighty God or Holy Spirit. There are approximately 52 verses in the Bible to that effect. But just because the Bible said it does not make it the truth. It is only a truth claim and not the truth itself. All right, so here really quick, I just want to say I, I, I agree with this. Just because a document says something is true does not make it true. Right. And, and Christians, I think, have to recognize this as well of, look, the, the Quran is claiming to be true or the, the Book of Mormon claims to be true. There's a lot of religious documents claiming to be true. But just because a piece of paper or document says this is true doesn't make it true. Right. We first have to recognize this is the word of God. I have good reason to believe it is the word of God. God doesn't lie. So when God says this is true, it's true. But there needs to be some backing for that, some historical evidence, some reason, some way of looking at it. Because just because someone wrote a piece of paper and says, this is the word of God and it's true, 
doesn't make it true. I mean, you could test it out right now. Take a piece of paper, write down, this is the word of God, this is true. That doesn't make it the word of God. So we have good reason to believe that the scriptures are divinely inspired, that they are the true word of God, confirmed by history and archaeology and these different things. But she's absolutely right. Just because it said, the Bible says it's true doesn't mean it's true. I just wanted to say, hey, I, I agree with that. We need to have good reasons to be able to support the truth of the Bible rather than it says so. That's circular reasoning. Let's continue. Critical scholars have categorized the errors into contradictions, absurdities, exaggerations, and bogus prophecies. Is the Bible free of such errors? Again, that is her four-part series. Um, and so this is just going to be part one on the contradictions. This four-part series will examine that question. The goal of this series is to show that the Bible is an utterly human work, replete with these very human errors. All right, so again, we see here very quickly, uh, that that's her thing, We the goal. This is a human work filled with human errors. And so we need to now watch the rest of this, and we're going to work through it and see, is she does she provide good reasons? How did she come to this conclusion? Right, again, I, I teach a lot on the show the idea of tactics, the tactical approach to having conversations from Greg Kokel's book on tactics. All right, you made a claim. What do you mean by it's filled with errors? We're going to get to that. Okay, how did you come to the conclusion that it's an utterly human work? All right, and now have you considered these things? And so she's going to provide the reasons for how she came to that conclusion. I'm going to provide some have you considered these things uh, that I think actually solve the problems that she thinks are created. So here we go, back into it. Fundamentalists have been trying to defend the contradictions through different arguments. The most common of them is that they are translational or scribal errors. They contend that the scribal errors should not discredit the message that the original divinely inspired manuscripts contain. All right, again, I want to agree here. This is one way in which Christians do respond to the contradictions in Scripture is by saying these are manuscript errors, these are scribal errors. Uh, however, we also have to recognize this isn't how we reconcile all contradictions or all errors is through scribal mistakes and scribal things. We can definitely look at some. And when we see a mass amount of number of contradictions in especially like the New Testament manuscripts, over 100,000, hundreds of thousands of contradictions, and then we see a lot of them are spelling mistakes or very minor issues, we can eliminate a lot. And so that is one way that we defend the reliability of scriptures by showing that a lot of these translate these errors are just simply translational or scribal errors. They they flipped the name, Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, or they spelled something slightly off. And so this is one way that we address it, but I want to make sure we're very clear here, is this isn't the only way that we address all the problems, because that reason, that response doesn't actually solve every problem that comes up in scripture. There are different responses that we have. And so it's not just that one. We can't use that as a blanket statement to cover all problems in scripture. There are several unresolvable problems with that kind of defense. To start with, no original manuscripts survive for our verification. Not a single shred of a single verse of a single chapter. There is no way of knowing what they contained or if there were inconsistencies in their stories. All right, so a no original manuscript or no original autograph uh, still exists. That is true. Right, we do have to make sure we have this understanding uh, that it is true what she's saying, that no original manuscript or no, it's called the autograph, has survived. But then she makes the claim and says there's no way of knowing what they contained. 
And that's where I think that this is a jump that we actually have good reason to believe what they contained, and, and here is why. Now, imagine that you have, um, for example, I live near Los Angeles. I'm in, I'm in Orange County. So let's say Los Angeles Times, big newspaper. You have the author write an article on his computer that's going to get printed in the newspaper. That's the original. That's, that's the original autographed is the article on the computer. He then sends it to the printers and the printers get printed and that newspaper gets spread all throughout Los Angeles. Now, for whatever reason, let's say his computer crashes, the hard drive gets wiped and we lose that original document. Would we say that it's impossible to know what was on his computer, even though we don't have it? And I would say, yeah, absolutely. You can look at his article in the different newspapers and compare enough of those newspapers together and say, this was his original article. Now, even if people have crumpled up the newspaper, if they have scratched out parts, if they, you know, they've ripped in half. So here you only have a half a newspaper. You only have half of his article in this place, or someone actually changed it and reprinted it. You know, they, 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 uh, you know, plagiarized his article and put it online and they changed aspects or misspelled things. You could still start to compare all of these different newspapers, the plagiarized online article and all these different things. And you could, I think, reasonably reconstruct what the original said. I don't think that that is a stretch to do. Another common example is given is like a recipe. If, if your grandma has a recipe and she copies that recipe down for her three children, and then her three children each copy down for all their three children. So you have now three grandkids and three, you know, you have all these grandkids now with this recipe and grandma's recipe gets destroyed. You could easily go back to everyone's recipe card and recreate what was grandma's recipe. And maybe this one family didn't like blueberries, and so they took out blueberries and put in, you know, strawberries instead. But then these four families over here had blueberries, and, and you could trace back and you go, oh, here's where that one change was made. Because this person was allergic to blueberries, they switched the recipe. And so by comparing all this, you can figure out, here's what grandma's original recipe is. I don't think that that is a stretch. And so this is the work of textual critics, where they are comparing and contrasting all of these different manuscripts and all these different copies where changes have been made, and there's enough of them to where I do believe that we can recreate the original to a very high level of confidence. That it is not like there's no way of knowing what they contained. I think there's a good reason that we can know uh, what was contained in these different, um, it, what was contained in the original. Same is the case with what apologists claim to be the largest body of evidence, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls are earliest Hebrew manuscripts that date from around the first century BCE. When they were first discovered between 1947 and 1956 in a desert near the Dead Sea, it seemed like they could come to the aid of apologists, but did they? While a few books from the Bible have been found among the scrolls, a lot of them were missing except for a few scraps of incomplete chapters. Christians claim that the Old Testament is represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, making it sound as if it is represented in its entirety. The truth is, the scrolls contain less than half of the modern text of seven books of the Old Testament and only a few verses of 17 other books. Now, really quick, let me jump in in here and say, uh, that is a claim that we shouldn't be making, right? Because, and we'll talk about what the Dead Sea, what were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls here in a moment. But if you are making this exaggerated claim that the entire Old Testament, every verse of every book has been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, then you are making a claim that is not true and you should stop making that claim. Uh, if you say that every book was found in its entirety except for Esther, then you're also making a claim that's not necessarily true and that is overstating your case. And so if it's true that you are 
making this claim and trying to represent like the entire Old Testament, as she says, the entire Old Testament is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, then you should stop. That is not something that we should be making. Not even a dot from the book of Esther is found in them. All right. I forgot it was coming back to that so soon. So uh, she's right in that. Uh, there is nothing from uh, from Esther. Um, these sort of things are true, but this doesn't, again, lead us to uncertainty. That's not the purpose of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The purpose of the Dead Sea Scrolls is not to uh, recreate all of the old books, to have them in their entirety, to have this early document. What we have is that what we have found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is very accurate to what we have from later. Right, so we have this time gap of what, what used to be our oldest manuscript for the Old Testament, the oldest copy of the manuscript that we have. Then we find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and at least with the Great Scroll of Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from a thousand years earlier. So here's what we do. We can now have the Great Isaiah Scroll and other Dead Sea Scrolls from a thousand years earlier compared to the manuscripts that we have at this point and say, okay, what changed? And what we see is there are minor changes, but it's minor. What, it, what this does is it helps us see, even though all the manuscripts here at a later date are not also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't find everything, but we found matches. We see that the scribes actually had very good consistency in accurately translating what we have. Now, she makes the claim that there's like seven full books and like 14 other partial books, but these lists are kind of different on how people do it because, for example, First and Second Samuel was one book that we split up. Uh, same with First and Second Kings and others like that. Some people put all the minor prophets together and uh, is considered kind of one book of the minor prophets. And so it's kind of a little bit deceptive, and I don't don't want to say that she was intentionally being deceptive, but it's a little bit deceptive to act like there's only 24 books represented. In reality, 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are represented at least in portion. When you separate out the, the, the duplicates, when you look at uh, the, the 12 minor prophets as separate books as they are in our Old Testament, you have 38 out of 39. The only one not found was Esther. But here's what's really cool. We also have many different scrolls of different books. So for example, Deuteronomy has about 39 or so different scrolls. And that number fluctuates slightly based on kind of how exactly they're counting, what they count as a full scroll versus maybe it was a part of something else. Uh, Psalm had about 39 scrolls. Uh, Genesis has about 30. Isaiah, about 22. But I want to show you one uh, right here of the Dead Sea Scroll. So if you haven't seen this, I just think this is so cool. This is the great Isaiah scroll that was found in the Qumran caves, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that dates to around 250 to uh, about 67 or so years before Jesus. And what's amazing about this is here's the very beginning up here, chapter one, verse one of Isaiah. And it's kind of destroyed where we have little bits and pieces missing at the beginning of the scroll, but they've digitally copied this in to this online database at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem to where you can literally go through, and if you can read Hebrew, click on any part, there's Isaiah chapter 29, verse 12, and you can read it right there. And this has pretty much all of all 66 verses to chapter 66, verse 24. This is so cool. Now, again, what is so amazing about this is a couple things. This is dated pre-Jesus. This has uh, the, the, the chapters on the suffering servant and the prophecies about the Jesus who is to come. And then again, this scroll comes from a thousand years before our previously oldest manuscript. 
and we don't see that this massive amount of change like we would expect in human scribes just translating this process. Like there's this major discrepancy, but before Jesus, it was it was no 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 prophecies. It was very different. And then after Jesus, somehow we added all this into the manuscripts and the scrolls that we have after the case, and this find in the Dead Sea Scrolls shows actually quite the opposite. It's so cool to be able to look. I mean, how, I mean, isn't that not awesome to be able to look through this scroll that literally dates pre-Jesus? It's just so cool how ancient history and archaeology kind of work together in that way. So I think in this case that she, she makes on the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls is they're not significant because we have the entire Old Testament represented and to show, therefore, it's true. But it's significant because they're dated so much earlier and pre-Jesus from what our previously oldest manuscripts were. And we can see the consistency of how things did not change. Now, so let's jump into uh, where she talks about the contradictions, or at least the scribal mistakes and the manuscripts of the New Testament. Here we go. As for the New Testament, even though it fares better than the old, in terms of the time gaps between the original compositions and the production of the extant copies, it still is not very impressive for something that is supposedly a supernaturally inspired work. This is where I, 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 I don't know what to say because this claim is made sometimes. And, and, I, and I want to be able to ask, what do you expect? Like, what we have... The number of manuscripts we have, the dating of the manuscripts, is not impressive for what's supposed to be a supernaturally inspired work. Well, what would be impressive? Like, do we have to have it coming from the exact moment of the original? Like, the, our first manuscript has to be the, from within the same day as the autograph? Do, do, they, do the autographs need to survive? Do, instead of having a few thousand New Testament Greek manuscripts, do we need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Like... What's impressive is that information 2,000 years ago was written down in a way in which we can reliably get back to what it was, even when documents back then did not survive well. We don't have any original documents of that time period. And so I just find it kind of interesting. It's like, well, I would ask the question, what would be impressive? If this is not impressive to you, what would be? And I think this kind of applies to other issues that people bring up with Christianity as well of like, well, like the miracles of Jesus. Like if he, if he really wanted to impress us, then he would show up today and he would do this. And the question is, is God's goal to impress us? And I would say no. God's job is not to impress us. His goal is not to impress us so that we go, wow, look at all the manuscripts. Wow, look how early. His goal is to get us his word. His goal is to help us know what he has revealed to us. And I think that he's done it perfectly well with what we have. Maybe the amount that we have is not impressive to some people, but why is this about how impressive something is versus that it got done, right? And it's kind of like you won the game, but you didn't win it impressively. If you're really a good team, you would have you'd have really won the game. It's like, but we won. Like that that's enough. So I don't know. I find kind of that, those kind of sort of comments interesting of, what does it mean to be impressive if it were this divinely inspired work? The oldest complete gospel manuscripts that are there today are from around 200 CE, which is well over a century after the likely date of their composition. That is 170 years after Jesus is supposed to have been crucified. 
Now, again, you probably heard this many times if you follow apologetics and, and the defense and reliability of the Bible, but a 170-year gap between our oldest manuscript and the original is actually super, super short gap compared to other ancient documents and other ancient biographies that we really trust to be accurate. Uh, and again, it's it seems like a massive gap, but the gap is not as big as as we see. But it's also, we don't only trust the New Testament because this gap is short. There's other reasons we'll get to here in just a moment as well. Two of the most completed manuscripts considered to be authoritative are called Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. And these date from the fourth century CE. Just like it is claimed about the Old Testament's representation in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Christians boast about the survival of the large number of New Testament manuscripts, making it sound as if it survives in its entirety. They completely ignore the time gap between the occurrence of the events and their reporting. Truth is, approximately 90% of them come from 800 CE or later, 800 years after the alleged events are purported to have taken place. All right, so Christians don't, or at least we shouldn't, ignore the time gap. Now, but what she says here about this idea that 90% of the manuscripts uh, come from 800 CE uh, or later, this same objection was brought to me on up, brought up to me on an airplane before I knew anything about dating of manuscripts and how many manuscripts were from each place. And so I didn't know if this was true or false. But here's what I think is important in trying to help you think, right? Because the whole point about me doing this video is it was sent to me by an, a Christian in India saying, will you please help me know how to respond? Well, here's how I responded to this objection on an airplane that was randomly brought up before I knew any of this stuff. I said, well, it doesn't matter when the majority come. Let's say it's true that 90% of the manuscripts come from 800 years after the time of Jesus. That doesn't matter if those 90% match what comes early. So even if only 5% come from early, but if we see 5% or whatever come from within 100 or 150 years after Jesus, and then the mass body that we have from year 800 matches what we have early, it doesn't matter. Then we still know that there's good reason to trust this, right? There's not this massive change because the story is, well, it's changed over time. The Christians have added and whatnot. Well, that shows that there hasn't been this change. But again, what do we expect? Like these documents like are not lasting well. I mean, it's 2000 year old, they're writing on a lot of different stuff. What do we expect to see? And so as time goes on, we have better ways of preserving these documents. And so yes, as time goes on, we have more and more documents. The question is not, when do the majority come from? It's do what we have, does that match what comes early? And it does. And so I don't think that that necessarily creates a problem. Now, again, it's not only these documents, though. We have the writings of church fathers. Now, again, this isn't the inspired word of God, but we have the writings of early church fathers from within the first hundred years of Jesus that confirms the basic gospel story that Jesus came and that he performed miracles and he died on the cross and that he, you know, this whole kind of basic core understanding of what is necessary in scripture, we also have from early church fathers, and we can also really create a strong framework from other um, non-Christian writers of that time. And so when we have non-Christians in the early first and second century talking about Jesus and the things that he did, we have early church fathers writing about things that Jesus and what he did, and then we have manuscripts showing up in the second century uh, of parts of the Bible, and these are all in agreement 
Now we have good reason to trust that these manuscripts are true and accurately representing the story, even if they do come a little bit later. Now, she's going to finish off uh, this kind of idea of uh, manuscript changes with two big questions, and then we're going to get into the defenses of these kind of contradictions in Scripture. So let's get back to uh, her video. For argument's sake, let's say the originals were perfect and errors crept in only at a later date through copying. Such an assertion raises two bigger theological questions. The first question is, if Yahweh is omniscient and knew that the future generations would have to follow only the copies, why was he able to inspire inerrancy in the beginning but failed to do so to the copies so as to keep his revelation perfect for them? The second question is, if... Actually, I'll stop here before we get to the second question. Just notice the wording. If he's omniscient, why was he able to inspire at the beginning but failed notice that word, failed to do so to the copyists. I don't think he failed. I, I, I don't, I can't, God didn't tell us why he only inspired the originals and not thereafter, why he didn't guide the hand of every single copyist to, to make sure we had this perfectly copied uh, document. But that doesn't mean he failed. It means he just chose not to. Now, I think you could also make the case is if we had this weirdly kind of perfectly copied document, then it's like, well, how do we actually know? I think it would, but this, this might sound weird, but it would be harder to know what the original said. Because if we only have one copy and it's the exact same, there's been no variations, no changes, then if there was happened to be this change somewhere, you could argue, no, there's a change somewhere down the line. And what we have is not accurate. And there would be nothing to compare it to. I think the fact that it has been changed slightly, and we have so many with different variations that textual critics can now come together and perfectly compare the whole thing. So go back to our, our grandma uh, recipe. If grandma has a recipe and maybe a change creeps in in the next copy down, I'm blocking my microphone, hoping you still hear me. <laughs> in the next copy down, a change is, is added in, and then we only have copies of that well, now we don't have the original. You can't actually know what your grandma's recipe was because you just trust this. You trust that the only thing you have, that that perfect one, all in agreement copy you have must have been the original. And if a change crept in, you have no idea. The fact that God didn't perfectly inspire this in the copying, and there are some mistakes, now give us all these different copies with different mistakes and different errors and different contradictions or different spellings all over the place that we can take and read and put them all together and come back to a really, I think, much better certainty of what the original actually said. So I think that that's actually a plausible reason. God didn't say, this is why I did it this way. And so I don't know if that's the reason God did it. But I think that we, it actually gives us a better certainty uh, of this. And it's similar to uh, police who are interviewing eyewitnesses. If each eyewitness gives the perfect, exactly word-for-word statement, you assume they colluded. But it's when they give a slightly different thing that you're able to put all the pieces together and probably get a better understanding in the end of what takes place. Now, uh, it's going to cut off really quick right after the second question, but notice the second question as well is, if Yahweh, or I'll let her read it and then we'll talk about it. Yahweh is omniscient. Why bother to inspire the originals perfectly if he knew it was not going to stay that way? So why bother to inspire the originals if he knew it wasn't going to stay? That's like saying, why teach my students accurately because I know some might mess it up? Well, I know some students might get it wrong, Therefore, I'm not even going to try to teach them right in the first place. Well, no, because some do get it right. 
or the ones that got it right are able to help the ones who got it wrong come to a better understanding. No, 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 you got this wrong. Here's what Mr. Polly was actually saying. And so, I mean, it's the same thing with the newspaper. Like, why write an article uh, correctly online, conveying correct information, when you know that people are going to plagiarize you, take you out of context, and, and mess up what you said? Well, because it's important to say it right the first time. Right? This is, you know, one issue with doing videos like this is that people will take what I say and go, oh, Ryan just said that. And it's like, no, 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 I didn't say that. Just because I know people are going to mess up what I said and maybe use it against me or say it over here or quote someone, you hear it all the time. So-and-so said this. And it's like, I know that person. I don't think they actually said that. But just because someone is going to mess it up doesn't mean we don't try to say it correctly the first time because some people are going to go get it right. And it's important to say state things correctly. And so uh, I don't think these two big questions offer really a big question. I, I don't know why God didn't copy it, but I think there's good reasons. Um, but here's, here's another question to think about. Let's say God did keep the scribes from committing any mistakes in the manuscripts to where all the manuscripts perfectly agreed with each other. Do you think that would make more people become Christian? Would that lead more people to Jesus? Like you often hear this again with miracles of like, if, if Jesus showed up right in front of my face and then like started levitating off the ground or something like that, then I would believe. And some people go, well, actually, I would just assume I'm crazy and check myself into a psychiatrist. Like the question is, 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 is God's goal to just simply persuade as many people to believe, to, to just convince you, right? That's what people wanted Jesus to do, right? Why don't you do miracles right in front of me? It's like, dude, you're, you're not going to believe. If you don't believe this, then you're not going to believe me. By, by showing miracles is not going to convince you when you're hard-hearted and when you're not going to believe. And so I would even ask, like, would a perfect Bible actually lead more people to believe? And I'd be convinced, or I would, I, would, I would lean to say no, because look, I believe that God has done things the best way to bring the people to him that he desires to come to him. And God didn't like mess up to where he's like, man, if I would have done this, more people would have been in heaven. No, God has done it in his perfect way. And so I trust that the way that he has revealed himself to us and the methods that he has used is actually what's best to bring the people that he desires to come to him to come to him. Um, so I think it's possible. And also, I think it's possible that people, by looking at the contradictions or the alleged contradictions or looking at all these manuscripts could actually deepen people's faith and deepen their ability to believe more. The question is, has God done enough? Has God done enough? I think he has. I think he's given us plenty of reasons to where if you are willing to believe in him, he has done enough. He has not done so much to kind of make people feign loyalty to him, but he has done enough so that those who are willing to believe in him, believe in him. I do believe that God has done enough. So here's her, that's kind of the first problem that she has, or I guess she calls it the first defense. The first defense that Christians make is manuscript scribal errors. And so she talks about that here. Um, Number two, uh, she's going to give her second defense here. This is another way that Christians try to defend against the contradictions and problems of the Bible. And she's going to present that one here. Here we go. There's another defense that fundamental Christianity presents for the contradictions. And that is that the stories of the Bible were reported by different eyewitnesses who were merely restating what they saw from different viewpoints, each one excluding but a few details in his report. They assert that the exclusion of some details by each of the eyewitnesses does not mean that the viewpoints mutually disagree. However, 
what the biblical narratives have are not mere change of perspectives. Okay, so here's where we begin to uh, have this, what I'll say is her view, uh, start to come into these examples. So the common example, and I've already used it, is different eyewitnesses giving a description of what happened at a scene. And so if you have, for example, an eyewitness that says, uh, yes, there was a man that robbed the store and he was driving a silver car. Uh, and then another person say, uh, there was a 50-year-old guy who robbed a store and he was driving a Ford Mustang. Those are complementary eyewitness accounts that says, okay, now we have a 50-year-old man who's driving a silver Ford Mustang, right? And those kind of work together. Now, the example that she uses in this video is, well, if someone says, oh no, I'm blinking on the exact example she uses, but if someone says, you know, a, a man was driving a red car and then someone else says, no, it was a woman driving a green tractor, then these different perspectives are not leading us more to a, a better conclusion of what actually happened. It's not just a change in perspective. These are fundamentally contradictory. These are not minor changes. And I would say, yes, if that's what we have in scripture, then they're not minor. They're fundamentally contradictory, meaning that either one or both of the eyewitnesses is mistaken and actually got it wrong. The, the question is, though, are they fundamentally contradictory like man driving red car and woman driving green tractor? Or are they actually complementary like man driving silver car, 50-year-old guy driving Ford Mustang? And that's what we're going to be looking at as she then presents these contradictions. And that's what we want to look at is she's assuming these are fundamental contradictions that cannot be reconciled. And I'm going to say, no, these can be reconciled. And so we don't get to the same conclusion that you do. Uh, there's um, her, her third argument is talking about these different perspectives. And I think actually what I just mentioned, I might've gotten ahead of myself. Let's jump back into her video. There is yet another Christian argument that needs to be addressed. The argument is this. Different perspectives in reporting an event add to the credibility of the event. There is no doubt that more perspectives mean there are more eyewitnesses. And the more the testimonies, the more the chances of getting to know the truth behind an event. But when the testimonies disagree on the most crucial aspects, then we have reason to doubt their very occurrence. All right, so here's where I just talked about, and Esther, I couldn't agree with you more, is that um, I agree with you that the more eyewitnesses that we have, if they are giving from different perspectives, it does add credibility to the story, right? If you have one guy that watched a murder happen, uh, yeah, we can kind of trust it. But when you have two eyewitnesses and let's say you have five eyewitnesses and let's say you have 10 eyewitnesses that all saw the murder giving credible stories, we have good reason to believe that took place. But you're absolutely right that if they disagree in a fundamental way, then we do have reason to doubt their credibility. And so I 100% agree with this point. I just don't think that the examples that are going to be presented here disagree in that fundamental way. Uh, now, here's where kind of the narrative starts, is uh, what she talks about of the two versions of every story, uh, story in these doublets. So let's jump back in. When we talk about biblical contradictions, it is important that you know that in the Old Testament, we find two versions of every story. Well, at least most of them, starting with the creation account in Genesis, which is the very first book in the Old Testament. Now, this is seen as a problem and has been named doublets in the field of biblical criticism. Okay, so she says this has been seen as a problem. 
it's only a problem if you assume that the two stories are are fundamentally contradictory. So she gives Genesis as an example, and unfortunately, she doesn't use Genesis in this video, and so I don't know exactly where she's talking about the contradiction in the video. She's going to give three other examples that we'll see here in a little bit. But these these doublet problems are only problems if they're actually contradictory. And her assumption is that they are contradictory, and you'll see that in her next point, therefore, they become a problem. Um, I think that it's easy to reconcile Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I have other videos on that. Maybe I'll find the video. I didn't post it, but I'll find the video and put it in the description below, or it'll pop up here in the corner. But uh, look, if they're not contradictory, then it doesn't create a problem, the fact that the story has been told twice in two slightly different perspectives. But you see why she considers it a problem in her next comments that come up right here. There are two reasons why this is seen as a problem. One, the repetition is made in such a way that it seems as if the story is being told the first time and the author reporting it for the second time has no clue that it has been already reported. And the first one has no clue that it is going to be reported again. See, notice in this first problem is the repetition is a problem because the first author didn't know the second author was going to report it. So now this is assuming that there has to be a different author for Genesis 1 than there is for Genesis 2 because it seems to be very similar, but it's different enough to where whoever wrote Genesis 1 didn't know someone else was going to write Genesis 2. Whoever wrote Genesis 2 didn't know there was a Genesis 1. And so we have two contradictory stories that somehow wind up as Genesis 1 and 2 in the book of Genesis. Again, that's only a problem if you assume two different authors. If you assume the same author writing something in a slightly different perspective, then it doesn't create the problem that the double issue seems to suggest it creates. The second reason is because the two versions vary greatly in their crucial details. And again, there's, there's the main point right there, is that if we assume Genesis 1 and 2 vary greatly in their crucial details, then we have to figure out how the same author could have written these two stories with such massive contradictions and not realize he just wrote something that contradicted himself. So it has to be two authors. But when you reconcile the story and you see, no, there aren't great crucial details that are contradicted in these stories, then it's easy to have the same author write both, and it's two different perspectives. All right, so here's where we're going to get into now our three main contradictions. Uh, she And I'll kind of give you a heads up. It's going to be, um, well, first is the killing of Goliath. Then we're going to talk about children being punished for their father's sins. Actually, there's four of them. The Ten Commandments, and lastly, the James Paul uh, faith by works, saved by faith, saved by works debate. Those are the four contradictions that she's going to bring up that we're going to work through here. So let's hit play. First example is of stories that had had profound effect on the minds of Christian children through the centuries. It is the story of the killing of Goliath. The David and Goliath story is one of the very first stories that Christian children get to know in their lives. In fact, the only way children know about David at that age is by his heroic act of killing Goliath, who is the enemy of Israel's God. This important event in the Bible contradicts in the most crucial detail, Goliath's killer. The Bible names two different people, David and Elhanan. According to 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is the killer. But according to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 19, the killer is Elhanan. So this is, I'm assuming she is presenting this as a doublet issue of the same stories being told about Goliath getting killed. First, you have David killing Goliath, and then you have Elhanan killing Goliath. Uh, 
issue here, though, is is that our our duplicate stories uh, is Chronicles and you know Samuel, not First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel is one book. Now, notice something, uh, and here I have our scripture. First Samuel 17 is the first verse that she quotes, and this is the telling the story of David and Goliath. David ran out, stood over the Philistine, took a sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him, cut off his head with it. When he saw the Philistines, or when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now recognize this is First Samuel 17, right? David is a young kid. He was um, he was not king yet at this point. He had been anointed to be king, uh, but he was not king yet in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes and then kills Goliath. Part two of the story she has coming out of 2 Samuel verse 21. So stop for a second and say, well, where is David in this? You come back and you look at the previous things. David is king. David is ruling. What are all the things that happened? Well, between this, Saul was king. David goes and kills Goliath. David starts to gain fame. Then David starts to lead the armies. He starts to conquer all these cities. That makes Saul mad. Saul tries to kill David. Uh, David fights and flees from Saul. David even spares Saul's life. There's the whole Saul-David controversy. David is friends with Jonathan. All that information takes place. Saul dies. David becomes king. He's king for a while. And then you get to 2 Samuel 21. So to, I think to assume that this is the same story being retold ignores the fact that First and Second Samuel is, is one book telling the history of the people. One is David is a young boy pre-being king. At this point, David is king. And so I don't think that this is the retelling of the same story. Um, now, I forget why I just jumped off at that point, but I think that's really important to point out that it's a doublet. Or it's not a doublet, I don't think. Uh, and this is something very different. David becomes king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so he's already been king for a little while when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, now, she's going to jump into the explanation from Chronicles, and then we'll come back and look at how do we reconcile these two stories. So let's jump back into her explanation. There is a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 5 which claims that Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath and not Goliath himself. In an attempt to clarify the discrepancy, some later translations of the Bible have added the phrase brother of to 2 Samuel verse 21, 19, which names Elhanan. The problem is the Masoretic text, which I already mentioned is the most authoritative text of the original Hebrew, does not include this phrase in 2 Samuel. The most logical explanation as researched and reported by Baruch Halpern is that Goliath's death was attributed to David only after he became king and that Elhanan was really the one who killed Goliath. Alrighty, so notice that um, the most logical explanation is that David uh, him killing Goliath was attributed to him after uh, becoming king to try to make him look good, try to set him up to become king. But really, Elhanan was the killer. Now, she does mention here, let's come back to the, my verses. In Second Chronicles 5, now this is the retelling of the story. It says, there was a great war with the Philistines and Elhanan, son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite. The shaft of whose spear was like the weaver's beam. Now, this has led some people to believe then, when we come back to Second Samuel, that when it says Elhanan, the son of Jeffrey Odin, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, that it should say right here between struck down Elim, the brother of Goliath. And so as she mentioned, some people have gone back in 
and, um, and added that in later. Now you see, this is the ESV. They didn't add Elim, the brother of, because, or Lami, the brother of, because it's not, I think, in the most reliable text. However, we don't have to have it in the text of 2 Samuel for that one to make sense, right? So again, if you say, uh, so-and-so killed Bob, and then, so, and then someone else comes along and says, oh yeah, he killed, you know, so-and-so, the brother of Bob, like, like the, we can start to make sense of this. Now, but here's where I think there's three better, uh, I guess, suggestions for this text. Number one, based on Second Chronicles, some people say this was deleted from the text. This is a, a manuscript error. This is a scribal error. It's not there anymore. Maybe it wasn't there. But some say it was deleted. This should say Lami, the brother of Goliath. That's, that's a possibility. Another real possibility is that these are two different Goliaths. Goliath was a very popular name. We recognize today and back then uh, people have duplicate names. And so if you said, oh, John killed Bob, and then you said, oh, Sam killed Bob, and you go, well, how did John and Sam both kill Bob? Well, it's not only one person named Bob. Especially when you look at the ending here of the second Samuel, it says uh, these four were descended from the giants at Gath. Right? And so we have these understanding of these giants in Gath that had descendants of the giants at Gath. It's very likely that you could have two different Goliaths David, when he was young, killed a giant named Goliath. And then you have Elhanan, years later, while David is king, killing a giant named Goliath. One other possible explanation is some suggest that Goliath is a common noun for giant, just like Pharaoh is a common noun for a king of Egypt. It's not actually a name. And so when you say so-and-so killed Pharaoh, and then someone else killed Pharaoh, you recognize that there is more than one Pharaoh because Pharaoh is not a name, Pharaoh is a title. And so some have suggested that, or believe that Goliath is a common noun for a giant. You just call him a Goliath. And so David killed a giant or a Goliath and Elhanan killed Goliath or a giant, uh, both just common nouns for a giant. And so what I think is that those, at least the last two, Two different guys named Goliath or Goliath being a common noun are very plausible explanations that make sense of this. And so to say, though, that the only possible explanation is that this was attributed to David after becoming king, and this is the same story, I think doesn't also take into account a much bigger issue of the time gap between 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 2 Samuel chapter 21. And so I think it's reasonable to say, no, this isn't a contradiction in a fundamental way of who killed Goliath. It's very likely two different Goliaths, two different stories, years apart from each other, both descendants from the giants at Gath. I don't think this creates the problem that she suggests that it does. Let's go to the next one. We find contradictions even in stories that have eternal implications. For example, are children punished for their father's sins? According to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, they are. This verse says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Next, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. This is affirmed in another passage in another book, which is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. All righty. 
Um, no, I think some, I was looking through the live chat there as I was watching that. I think some great comments are being made here that I want to highlight. And it's, and it's true that even if these are some contradictions, you, you lose inerrancy. Now I believe inerrancy is true, but you lose inerrancy, but you, you still would have to show that the resurrection of Jesus is false. Right. And I, and I love the comment here, um, by the blue bunny, uh, or the blood. Yeah. Blue bunny. Sorry about that. Um, the only thing that would make me walk away would be if someone proved that Jesus didn't resurrect. And I think that's true. Okay. So they made a mistake. Okay. So we lose inerrancy, but we still have a resurrection of Jesus. Um, that to me is huge. And so I, I, I want to stop here and maybe say something that I think is huge is I was speaking not uh, too long ago at uh, somewhere where someone was talking about the doubts that they have and trying to reconcile these doubts. And one of my encouragements was, yeah, to keep looking for answers. When you have questions, when you have doubts, look for answers till you're satisfied. But I also, my encouragement was, and I learned this from other people, I didn't come up with this, is classify your doubts. What if that doubt was never answered? What if that doubt what if you could never answer that question? I don't want to tell people, oh, don't ask questions. You'll, you'll get all your answers in heaven. You hear that sometimes. That's not the whole point. The, the whole point is, what if, you never, what if you never get that answer? Is that a big enough issue to where you would walk away from the faith? Right? And this person was asking about how many angels were at the tomb or what inscription was above the head of Jesus. Let's say, let's say that you never figure out a satisfying answer to how many angels at the tomb were at the tomb. Does that mean Jesus did not resurrect from the dead and you're willing to throw away the evidence that we have for the death and resurrection of Jesus because you can't figure out how many angels were at the tomb? Or even that you think that the Bible got it wrong? I hope not. Right? The other comment here is, um, is when we have the kind of the young earth creation, old earth, you know, creation, progressive creation debate. How old is the universe? And sometimes we, um, we believe in, a, in one view, often, you know, it's the earth is young and then we become convinced that science is accurate and that the earth is old. And instead of recognizing that that can fit with scripture or that doesn't throw out the resurrection of Jesus, we had abandoned Christianity altogether and go to atheism, which has its own set of issues. And I'm teaching my high school students on evolution right now. And my encouragement to them to us is I think evolution is false. I don't believe in evolution. But even if evolution is true, that doesn't mean Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so I think it's so important. And I love the comments that you guys are making here. And I wanted to, to, to recognize that. Is it so important to recognize are these fundamental contradictions that would mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that we can't trust his death and resurrection, that Christianity completely falls apart? Even if evolution is true, even if the earth is old, even if they made a mistake and accidentally said Elhanan killed Goliath instead of David or something like that, it doesn't mean that we lose the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I don't think that they did make a mistake. And as I'm showing, I think there's an explanation for it. But uh, I think that's really important to point out. Now, all right, so I probably have to go back and replay, but she just made the comment about, are we punished for our father's sins? And so she points out here in uh, Exodus, now let me go to my website text. There we go. In Exodus, it says, you shall not bow down or serve them for I'm the Lord. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So yes, she says, Exodus says, children are punished for their father's sins. You come over here to Deuteronomy and it said that fathers shall not be put to death because they're children, nor shall the children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one should be put to death for their own sin. This again is repeated, as she mentioned in Ezekiel, uh, where it says, the son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. So is this a fundamental contradiction? I don't think it is. It might be uncomfortable sometimes, um, but I think to me, a, a way to think about this that makes a lot of sense is sports. 
there are times where as a sports team, one player would mess up and the whole team runs, right? There's a way in which you punish the whole team for the mistake of one. But that doesn't mean that that is a universal thing where we always get punished for the mistake of one. When my grade suffered and I became ineligible, the whole team didn't become ineligible. That was me. And so there are ways in which you punish the individual for the individual's mistakes because it is an individual mistake that affected the individual and you get punished and you get ineligible and you can't play. And then there are mistakes that affect the team and the whole team would get punished and the whole team would have to run. And so I think it, it, like to me, that to me, I go, that, that makes complete sense. Now, maybe that's not satisfying to some, but for me, I go, they can both be true. These are not mutually exclusive claims. We also have to recognize that immoral behaviors of parents often do result in the suffering of their children and grandchildren. That the way in which we act and the way in which we present ourselves around children and grandchildren, they learn from that and that can be a generational thing. And so we see, uh, I think in the Old Testament, of a ways in which a culture would act that would spread into the children and the children would be acting immorally too because of the mistakes of their parents. And so there's a way in which they are ju justified or they are judged because they're doing it, but it, they learned it from their mistake. They're just repeating what their parents done. And so the children are punished for what the parents did, but the children are doing it as well. And so I think those two are ways of reconciling this as saying, yeah, the children suffer because mistakes of the parents, it harms them. But it is not this exact rule for all situations at all times. It's a general principle that there are times where the punishment is inflicted upon the generations because they're all engaging in it or it affects all of them, like a sports team runs for the mistakes of one. And there's times where there's individual punishment where you've what you've done is that. And so God judges people groups for one thing, but eventually when we get to heaven, it is he'll judge us individually for our sins. And so I don't see this flat out contradiction in this text as she suggests that there is. Uh, let's see how she says that Christians try to reconcile it. Fundamentalists justify the discrepancy by asserting that the passage in Ezekiel is a revised treaty offered by Yahweh between himself and his people. As if with the passing of time, Yahweh grew closer to his people and he reconsidered his rewards and punishments for them. Even if we take that assertion to be true, why did Yahweh change his goalpost so frequently in such a small gap in time, which indicates his fluctuating righteousness and mercy, questioning the Christian claim of moral absolutism? All right, this is really important. Now, I didn't point out in Ezekiel, we'll come back here to uh, the Ezekiel passage. Notice something interesting. Uh, in the beginning of the passage, it says, yet you say these things. Well, who is the you? You come down to verse 25 and it says again, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear me now, O Israel. Now the you then here is Israel. Israel is saying these things, right? And so again, we can reconcile these in different ways. But notice she says, the fact that God has is acting differently in different situations, it shows this fluctuating moral absolutism to where God is just flippantly kind of changing his minds and you lose this objective morality. This objection is made with other aspects of the Old Testament as well in the Old Testament law. What we have to realize is that God does interact with people in different ways at different times, but the grounding moral principle stays the same. God is not changing in that sense, right? People often see God as, as forgiving of the Israelites in one time, and then at, well, another time he punishes them. But what we recognize is God not changing, 
But the Israelites changing. At times, they are in submission to God and following God and loving God, and they're under his blessing. And then they go into rebellion. They move into under being under his punishment. Right? It's the same thing with parents. There's times where you bless your kids and whatnot, and there's times where you punish your kids. It's not because the parent is being flippant and, and just randomly changing rules. It's because the parent has this objective standard of goodness, and the kid is changing positions under the authority of the parent. So yes, God does give different commands at different times for different purposes, but all following and flowing from the same objective moral principle of loving him, loving God, loving others are the greatest commandments as we see in the person of Jesus. And so the application may be different, but the principle remains the same. As the author of... Now, one other thing that's important to recognize, God stands in a different... And I told you guys I would have so much. I was going to try to cover four of her videos in one hour, and here we're at one hour, and I'm still on point number two uh, here of her four points. So thanks for sticking with me. Hopefully this is good and hopefully helping you work through this, um, this information that is being presented here. We also have to recognize God stands in a different um, position to morality than we do as the author of life. The example I often give with my students is I have like a flag on my wall or imagine my guitar, my guitar right here behind me on the wall. It's my guitar. I paid for it. It's mine. It would it be wrong if I decide, you know, I don't want my guitar one day and I just want to break it. And I grab my guitar and I smash it on the ground. Now, some of you who love music might go, no, don't do it. Oh, come on. But it wouldn't be wrong for me to do because it's mine. But what if you came into my house, grabbed my guitar off the wall and smashed it on the ground? Of course that would be wrong. Why? It's not yours. Right, so we recognize God is the author and creator of life. He gives life and takes life away. God can't murder Murder is the unjustified taking of innocent human life. I can't murder because it's not my life to take. But God is the author of life. It all belongs to him. He can do what he wants and what he pleases to do with what is his. And so God can't murder. God can take life and give life, but that's not murder. So God does stand in a different relationship we have to recognize uh, than what we stand in um, in the same way. So, all right, let's jump back in. A few more to go here. The second example in the category of eternal implications is the giving of Ten Commandments. Not one, but two sets of Ten Commandments have been given by the Israelite God. Yahweh calls... She points out at the very end that most Christians are very surprised by this. Um, two sets of commandments uh, have been given. So I want you to be careful and, and see what does she consider to be the two different sets of Ten Commandments. Now, most of us are aware that God gave the Ten Commandments twice. Is it the same thing given twice, or are they actually different sets? Moses to a mountaintop and dictates to him Ten Commandments, which Moses writes on two stone tablets. After spending 40 days and 40 nights on this, Moses comes down the mountain and smashes the stone tablets to pieces in anger at his people because they made an idol and started worshipping it while he was gone. Yahweh then calls him back to the mountaintop, telling him that he will give the same commands that he had given earlier. They spend another 40 days and 40 nights. But Yahweh only manages to keep two of the original and replaces eight. According to Exodus 20, the traditional ten are to keep the Sabbath, to not kill, to not steal, etc. In Exodus 34, when Moses is called back, Yahweh replaces eight of the ten to include the most bizarre commandments like not sacrificing anything with yeast, like celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, 
and to not cook baby goats in their mother's milk. All righty. Um, so two different sets. Uh, the first time he gives us the Ten Commandments. The second time he replaces eight of the commandments and then gives us some weird, interesting ones. I think that this conclusion has been come to because there's something very, very small that possibly has been missed. Notice in the verse that she quotes. In Exodus 34, she quotes uh, verses, um, well, I don't have the exact one that she had on the screen, but here at the beginning of 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I, who's the I? God. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So cut two tablets, give them to me. I will write. So God writes the Ten Commandments again, the same words that were on the first tablets that Moses broke. God writes on the tablets. Then we get to the covenant being renewed, where God starts to give all these new commands that she mentions. And so... You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You should do all these things. And as she mentions, the most interesting one at the, here at the very end, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Notice these are not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments up here at the very beginning were written on the stone by God. God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone. Then he says, behold, I make a new covenant. Now let me tell you some things that you also need to do, not the Ten Commandments. The misunderstanding, I think, that God wrote the Ten Commandments again the second time as the first states, and assuming these are the new Ten Commandments is why we get this understanding that God changed his mind and we have a different set of Ten Commandments. Now, what's really important is this last thing that seems so odd and strange, to not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Commentary suggests that it was a pagan ritual that people would boil their children in their mother's milk to increase their crop yield. And so God here is saying, don't be like them. Don't boil a child in the mother's milk. Now, you're probably not going to boil a human child in the mother's milk, so don't even boil a young goat in the mother's milk. Don't be like the pagans around you. And so it's something really important is if something seems weird, we don't just mock it. Oh, wow, God is just going crazy. The question is, why would God say that? There's probably a good reason. And I think that's pretty good reason. And that's what a lot of the Old Testament laws are for is don't be like the people around you. You are a holy chosen nation called to be different. Apart from the embarrassment to Christians that their God, who they claim is the creator of the universe and the God of all cultures and nations, had nothing more important to instruct man than how to cook livestock and offer the meat to Yahweh. Notice the, notice the way she just pitched God. It, it's, it's bothersome. God had nothing better to do than tell people how to, the creator of the universe had nothing better to do than tell people how to cook their mother's milk. Really? That's, the, that's this narrative that paints God in this negative light rather than God is calling his people to be different. That is important. God is calling his people to be holy. That is what we are created for is to be in relationship with God. And that is what he is calling them for. Just because we don't understand why he tells them not to boil a young goat in the mother's milk does not mean that God has a very good reason for it. And, guidelines. and by the way, that doesn't embarrass me. It's not an embarrassment to me to have to make sense of this. When you look at the text, I, th text, I think there's good reason to see why God did this. To observe his festivals, they have Yahweh's inconsistency aspect to account for. The fact that Yahweh changed his mind in just a day about what his chosen race must do to gain his favor. 
Again, it, he only changed his mind if we don't catch that first part in Exodus 34, where God wrote down the Ten Commandments himself, then gave the new commands. Indicates the fickle-mindedness of Yahweh. A fickle-minded being is not worthy of worship. And here again, we get that narrative. God changed his mind, therefore he's fickle-minded, therefore he's not worthy of worship. Well, hold on a second. Well, we just went down to, you can't worship God, God is fickle-minded. It's like, but we missed a part. God wrote down the Ten Commandments, the second set, the same, himself. It must be a difficult and an embarrassing task for the apologist to defend this divine goof-up of what are alleged to be the most important commandments for mankind. Um, I'm sorry, Esther, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. I don't think this is a divine goof-up. I think it's clearly stated in the text that God himself wrote down the second set. Um, I think that that's missed in the text. I'm not embarrassed to explain this. They do it nevertheless by claiming that Yahweh meant to keep both the sets. The first was given as an ethical set and the second as a ritual set. All right, we're going to jump in the last one. Time's going by. If Yahweh was going to establish his covenant with Israel on the second set of the commandments, what was the purpose of the first ones? Why waste that much time? As if the leader of the chosen race and the creator of the universe had no better things to do for 80 days and 80 nights. Note that Yahweh... Again, notice, what did God do for 80 days and 80 nights? He met with his people. He came down face to face and spoke with Moses, revealing himself to him and, and showing people how to be in relationship with God. That is something worth his time. <laughs> That's not a waste of time. And, and that's the crazy thing about Christianity is that God comes down and, and desires this personal relationship with us. That's a beautiful thing that God wants to come and enter in and have that communion with his people. That's not a waste of time. And that's, that should blow our minds that the creator of the universe wants to do that. How cool. How amazing. does not say that they were the second set of Ten Commandments in addition to the previous ones that have been broken. If he had meant to give 20 commandments, shouldn't it have been made popular as 20 commandments instead of 10 commandments? By the way, the 10 commandments has a name and it is Decalogue. Also, if Yahweh meant both the sets to be followed, he should have first rewritten the broken set and then added the second set to it. But none of this happens. Ironically, a large section of Christians is blissfully unaware of there being two sets of Ten Commandments. So just, I mean, we talked a lot about this. They're unaware because there's not two sets. There's one set. And I can't agree with the comments coming in more is the reason I'm not doing this is she is the enemy. I'm not trying to attack Esther. Uh, if you missed the beginning, this was sent to me from a young Christian in India who is trying to stand up for the faith and saying, I need help responding to this. And so we're looking at these ideas. And I hope Esther watches this where I think, look, there, there are small things that are missed. And I hope you see this God as a beautiful being who wants a relationship with his people and he wants a relationship with you, not as a God who's wasting his time spending 80 days meeting with his people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, last part, and this is uh, uh, probably the longest one. This is the James and Paul faith and works debate, which I'm going to have to solve here in a very short amount of time that's been debated for such a long period of time. But let's talk about it. Another major discrepancy in the category of eternal implications is about how salvation is attained. These two texts are found in the New Testament. According to Galatians, 
in chapter 2 verse 16 a man is not justified by works of the law but by faith the book of galatians is an epistle to the early church in galatia and the writing is ascribed to paul but according to another book james in chapter 2 verse 24 by works a man is justified not by faith only note the mirror opposites of the phrasing of the two texts this is a huge discrepancy that Christianity has been struggling to answer for the past several centuries. Paul promotes a brand of salvation that can be attained only on the basis of faith. He dismisses all good works that a man does in his lifetime. Just to be clear, we have to admit, Paul does not dismiss all works that a man does. Just because he says you're saved by faith and not works, it does not mean that he dismisses all works. Those are two very different statements saying good works mean nothing to God if the person does not believe in Jesus. Faith. That part is true, right? It doesn't matter how many good things you do. If you don't believe in God, you're not going to be saved. In Jesus is what will put a person in heaven for eternity, Paul says. Right. But James's brand of salvation says that faith alone is not enough to get salvation. Man needs to accumulate some good karma too in order to get justified. All right, I don't think it's good karma, but I know what she's saying there. Um, all right, so this is obviously the massive debate uh, that I think is so important um, that I'm going to try to solve here in just a couple minutes. I do want to say, though, last week, the, the video I posted on uh, baptism being required for salvation, I think it's very similar to this debate. And I think that they're kind of one and the same. And I forgot to mention this in that video because that one ended up being way longer than I wanted as well. But hopefully that was okay. And if you didn't watch it, you can go back and check that one out as well. So let's jump into these verses here really quick and try to make sense of this long, confusing thing. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? So what Paul is making very clear here is by following the law, by doing enough, you will never be able to do enough. If you could do enough, then you can get into heaven and say, I did it all myself. I did enough. Look at me. I deserve the glory. The whole point of Christianity and the writings of Paul is you will never do enough. The law will not save you. The law is for the unlawful. The law is to condemn, not to save. And so you're not justified by the law. You're justified by faith. However, we flip over to James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here we have to recognize this seems at the surface to contradict what Paul is teaching on justified by faith alone. And now here it says uh, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. But they are compatible. Right, so for James, faith alone means this fake kind of faith. Yes, I have faith in God. It's it's like, you know, sometimes I get asked by students of like, well, so if I just say that I believe in God and then I can do whatever I want, like, no, right? That's what he means by faith alone. You, you only have faith. Yep, I believe in God, but you don't show any response to it, right? A follower of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus, if you love God and love Jesus and honor him and want to be like him and want to follow him, and he says, here are the things that you need to do, and you go, no, nah, I'm good, but I have faith. James is saying, that's not real faith. That's not what this works. That's a fake faith. And so what we see here is, is that. Now, if you go back in James, verse 21, so just before verse 24, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac to the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. The faith was completed by his works. Here's what I think is really important to point out is here in verse 21, Abraham being justified with works is not this, well, put it this way. It says the works completed the faith, right? The works showing the faith to be true. And this is how Christians often put it. And so what we have to recognize is it's not the works that are different, works to the law or, or different kinds of works. But what I think I want to point out and what makes a lot of sense to me and what at least has convinced me that this is easy to reconcile, it's the justify that is used different in these two difference, in these two ways differently. Um, James has a different sense of the word justify. So um, what, what I see here, and I'm looking through my notes, um, and I'm forgetting where exactly it was. Paul often, Paul uses the word justify as a sense of being declared righteous before God through faith. That is the way that Paul often uses the word justify is it's, it's the being declared righteous. You're justified, you're saved, you're declared righteous before God. James uses the word justify to emphasize the way that works demonstrate that someone has been justified. So your works are justifying your faith and your faith is justifying you before God. And so I think that there's a slight difference here. When you look at the context, you see the justification being slightly different, right? You can look at Romans 3, 24 and 25. They are justified by his grace of a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Jesus Christ redeems you. You're justified. You're made right before him versus what we see here in James 2, a person's justified works. It's the works are justifying the faith, right? The works are completing the faith. The works are active alongside the faith, showing that you don't just have this faith. And so I often hear it of like, no, the works show the faith is real, but I like to point out and I think it's important to point out that the word justify, I think that's the word that we recognize as being used slightly different. One is being justified, made right before God. Uh, the other is justifying the faith. And so I know a lot more could be said and a lot more, I uh, probably a lot of maybe people disagree, but I think that on the surface, we recognize that. And so I think that, I, I think I heard from William Lane Craig once, is if you look at this and if you went to James and said, do you really think that works is what saves you? I don't think James would say, yes. And he goes, no, 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 let me clarify my point. I think that's what would happen. And I think that we see that in this very short kind of analysis of this verse. So let's jump back in. And of course, my thing just messed up. But let's jump back in here to the very end of her conclusion, and then we'll finish up our time today. I will leave you by answering one last question. Why do contradictions matter so much to Christians that apologists fight tooth and nail to either not recognize them as contradictions at all or to explain them away? That is because the presence of contradictions in the Bible will render it a mere human work, automatically debunking in a self-negating fashion the claim that the Bible is God's word. I want to emphasize that and I say, yeah, exactly. Like, if we are going to hold true to the statement that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, which I fully believe, then we do need to take these contradictions seriously. But notice how she says they need to either explain them or explain them away. And I, I have a problem with this idea of explaining things away. And what often I think this comes from is, if what you say doesn't agree with what I believe, then you explain it away. And if what you say agrees with what I believe, then you simply just explained it. And that's not how this works. Um, I just try to give an explanation for the James Paul faith and works debate very quickly. 
Um, now, it's possible that I messed up. It's possible that I got it wrong and that there's a different explanation. I'm not explaining it away. Explaining away seems to present this idea like, I don't like this. I just want to get rid of it. Rather than I'm trying my best to understand what God's word has revealed. And so I think we need to be careful even just saying how we explain something away is often we accuse people of explaining it away just because it disagrees with me. Well, no, I have this understanding. You don't, you have a different explanation. Nope. You explained it away. And say, well, no, yeah, you have a different explanation, but let's, let's figure this out. Let's give each other the benefit of the doubt in those explanations. A being who is claimed to be the creator of the universe and everything in it, including man, cannot give a message that could be interpreted in any number of contrasting ways that could in turn give rise to unresolvable conflicts. Such a being must either be confused himself or such a work must be of human hands. God isn't confused just because he speaks and we mess it up. That means we are confused, not God. Notice how that quickly gets thrown on God that somehow he's confused because he didn't give us this perfect message that somehow cannot be confused. We are the broken, sinful human beings who can't understand things well and get things wrong sometimes. That doesn't reflect back on God's character. That reflects on ours. A confused being cannot be God. He's not confused. And since we have established through this video that there are indeed contradictions in the Bible, it can be affirmed that it is a work of humans. Therefore, all claims of it being God's work must be dropped and it must be treated as just another corpus of religious literature authored by primitive people who were trying to make sense of the world around them. All right, so there's the end. Um, and obviously Esther believes that her contradictions and the things that she brought up in this video are enough to show that there are fundamental problems, meaning God is confused. Uh, this is a, um, a man-made work that should just be thrown out. Um, I try to do my best to make a case that these are not fundamental contradictions. These are easily reconciled by looking at the flow of stories or by looking at the meaning and usage of words or the fact of little things I think that were missed of how God, yes, he did write the second 10 commandments, but they were the same as the ones in the first. And so uh, I hope this helped to the person who messaged me on Twitter and said, please watch her video and please help me know how to respond. Uh, that's, I mean, here's an hour and 20 minutes responding to her 20 minute video. I hope this was helpful. I didn't cover everything in the video. There's more stuff in the video that she mentions. And so there are some things I had to leave out. There's other things I know that I could have said, but next week at 2 p.m. Pacific time on Friday, I will be having a live Q&A where if you wanna talk about anything I talked about here, please call in, send in your questions ahead of time on social media. There are the connects for that as well. So you can send in your questions questions on social media. You can join us and post your questions in the live chat if you want to do it that way, or you can actually call in and have a conversation with me. That's going to be happening next Friday. And then again, uh, March 4th is going to be a conversa uh, conversation on prayer with Kyle Strobel. A lot of fun stuff coming up. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with a friend or a family member. Have an amazing rest of your day. Have a blessed weekend. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity, Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. Hesitate to follow your 